FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're now 12 days into the legislative session, and, and it's not unusual the first week or so things were fairly slow down at the state capitol, but now they're beginning to pick up uh, in, in terms of activity and uh, introduction of bills that uh, are going to get a lot of attention, I think, throughout the session. Uh, they just passed yesterday what they call the mid-year, the midterm budget, uh, or the mid-year budget, uh, $32 point billion for this mid-year budget, which includes, you've heard a lot about on this show and in the news, about the $1 billion in tax cuts that will give homeowners and individuals some breaks on their uh, taxes. There's money for school safety and other matters. And now, of course, they have to go to work on the big budget, which sets the uh, uh, tone for the fiscal year, which uh, starts in July. But in the meantime, there are a lot of other issues that are bubbling to the surface, and we're going to talk about those things and a lot more on today's show. So let me get right to the panel. It's Friday, which means my partner is Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, so glad that you're with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm just surprised that so much is happening without me, you know? <laughs> and you have said repeatedly, you don't miss it at all, which I guess is a wonderful thing. Good for you. Um, but just, thanks those, for those... being here. Those days at the Capitol are are, are, are are well put well behind me, yes. Yeah, yeah, those marble floors get to your, after a while, are really hard to walk across. Emma Hertz with us. She is a reporter for Axios Atlanta. Hi, Emma. How are you? Hi, I'm good. But I don't know if I believe that Jim doesn't miss it even a little bit because he's still here <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's Jim. exactly <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly but right. The rounding out I definitely our, understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, rounding out the journalists on today's show, Meg Kennard, who's a national politics reporter for the Associated Press based in South Carolina. And a little later in the show, Meg, I want to talk to you about a lot that's happening in politics in South Carolina. But I think it's also I think I'm right also that you're from you're from Memphis, right? I am. Yes, I am so, from a West so the, Tennessee native. That's true. So the Tyree Nichols um, story, I, I would think, you're, has a special maybe resonance for you. It does. You know, I'm at the point in my life where I've lived outside of Memphis longer than I actually lived there. But when you see a place that's special to you, that has been special at some point, go through such a, a time of, of reckoning and disruption, that always kind of literally hits home. And so my thoughts are definitely with the people I know and love that are still in Memphis. And I, I hope my city continues to heal from all of this because it certainly has been a trying time for Memphis as well as for the nation. Yeah, absolutely. Um Thank you for being here. Adrian Jones is back. We're really happy to have you back, Adrian. Adrian teaches political science at Morehouse College and is also the director of Pre 
Law at Morehouse. How's the semester going for you so far, Adrian? We are into the semester. Things are going quite well, humming along. What are you teaching this this time out? Um, I have national government, which is essentially American government with what I think is a funner name, and um, constitutional law. So, um, you know, both allow us to talk about rights issues, like the kinds that are going on right now, um, as well as fundamentals. You know, how does it work and what's supposed to happen versus what is actually happening? Yeah, yeah. What, what great classes to be teaching at this moment in our history. All right, let's get right to it. Jim Galloway, um, we know that for for well over a year, in fact, well, I take that back. It's probably going on three years now since Governor Kemp first applied for two waivers uh, from the uh, federal government for uh, how he would deal with uh, Medicaid and, uh, and, and health care in general in Georgia. And the one that's of interest to us, I think, today is the one he applied for um, which would allow Georgia to block healthcare.gov, the federal website that people use to shop for insurance, and put in its place uh, a website run by the state, which would, f- we don't really know exactly because they've, we, don't, we don't, haven't seen it uh, rolled out in a way that we would know what's going on, but essentially allow private insurers to offer uh, plans um, uh, to people in Georgia. The Trump administration had approved that waiver, uh, but the Biden administration pulled it back. All of that, I say, to point out that while the waiver is still not approved, there's now a bill in the legislature that would allow Georgia to do just that, block the ACA website in favor of the state site. And I should add, this comes at a time when we have just seen record enrollment in Georgia on the ACA healthcare.gov website, well over 800,000 people. Jim? Right. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I'm kind of puzzled. I'm not sure exactly how a, a, a state uh, a state action might might uh, uh, erase erase a, a access to a federal site, but what's 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 at, at, money is at bottom at, at stake here. Uh, maybe as much as a hundred million dollars in fees generated by the, the that website in Georgia, and right now those fees go to 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 things like uh, uh, navigators. To help people through, uh, to, to find the find the find the 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 kind of uh, policy that they want they want they need, uh, and and this would give Kemp uh, the power to to spend that money as he sees f- sees fit, uh, and he has been emphasizing reinsurance. Uh, in order to bring down health insurance, but not and for for uh, not for not for the the most needy people, not for not for people below the poverty line, but but for people in with middle incomes. Yeah, um, it, it, Emma, that that's one of the things that's interesting about this. One of the reasons that ACA uh, enrollment has picked up in Georgia and other states is that the, the Biden administration has added incentives for uh, people of lower incomes to get their insurance at a cheaper uh, rates. But uh, from what we can tell about the Kemp plan, as Jim points out, those incentives and those uh, that reinsurance concept won't go to the lower in earners. It will go to people in, in higher income brackets. 
I think that Jim is right on here that the money is is at the core, right? And a state taking over its its marketplace is not political. I mean, both Democratic and Republican states already do that around the country. But what I think is so interesting in a big picture way is if you think if we think back to Kemp's first um, campaign, he really didn't talk much about health care um, back in 2018, whenever that was. Um, and then immediately pivoted once he was elected and invested a lot of time in in these proposals um, and uh, has put in a lot of time since and money in defending them in the courts, trying to explain them to journalists. His staff has spent a lot of time doing that, realizing that this is a big problem and realizing, uh, I think, in a way that, that in 2018, at least Stacey Abrams really um, was arguing something that, that he didn't have much of an answer to policy-wise. And so this continued focus on it and trying to see these proposals, this limited expansion and, and tweaks to the system to try to make some progress, um, still, still something that he recognizes is, is a problem. And I guess, again, the question to what you're saying becomes like, what is the effect at the end of the day? How many people does this really yeah. help? Um, is this going to be enough to make a to make a difference? Yeah, that's right. You're referring, of course, when you, you talk about limited, uh, you're talking about the other waiver, which which is now going to go into effect um, right. in probably the summertime in which the uh, the state will offer a limited number, maybe as many they're now saying as 90,000 people to go on Medicaid um, as long as they uh, do work or some kind of community service in exchange for the benefit. And Democrats have said, why not just expand it to all the 400,000 or so people who need it? Um, Meg and then Adrian, um, the, the issue about changing over from the ACA website, I think, to a state site, it, it's hard not to think about the political uh, in all of this. I mean, Republicans have fought Obamacare since it was first introduced. They continue, well, they're not doing it so much anymore because the public has obviously finally said we sort of like the Affordable Care Act. But so it's hard to remove the politics from this in thinking about what are the practical reasons the state might do it. Thinking exactly along the same lines, I was having those thoughts when Jim and Emma were talking about this. You know, we remember back to the earlier days of the Obama administration when Republican-led states were engaging in all of this litigation over the ACA and over expanding services in their states and over, well, you know, obviously we saw that litigated to the ultimate degree of whether this is constitutional that people do this. And so, yes, clearly this public sentiment about these services and the way that health care and health insurance and health coverage is meted out on uh, a local um, citizen level, a lot of that has changed. But still, for Republicans aiming to be able to argue to their constituents, look, this is something that I still oppose, that people who share my political ideology still oppose— this, on the point of, of the governor in Georgia and um, some in other Republican-led states, this is the newest frontier for that. It's kind of a micro level of still opposing the ACA while still acknowledging that it's being available to people. But, you know, we should we as the state should be the ones that are conveying that as opposed to this federal purported overreach that conservatives would, you know, politically we expect argue against in terms of the federal government being the ones to, to meet that out. 
Adrian? I guess I feel similarly that it just feels political at base. Um, you're talking to me about a state-run program uh, that you're not explaining to me what it is. <laughs> this, you know, meanwhile, um, healthcare options for Georgians who are in dire need are available. Um, and that's not being applied in a widespread manner. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it also seems to me that it might be of political benefit to the governor to have you know, provided people more of the healthcare opportunities that they need. So I it just sort of leaves me confounded, especially where the there's no clarity around, you know, what is the state program going to be? Jim, you know, we do have to add there are a couple Democratic co-sponsors on this legislation. It's not just Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. No, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's an important point. Um, uh, Jim, let, let's talk about this from a, a political point of view in terms of Governor Kemp. Here's a, here's a governor who was just reelected by like eight points, uh, defeated his primary opponent in an overwhelming uh, victory. He is at the peak of his powers in this session right now. And, and I'm curious your thoughts about uh, in terms of this particular measure and other things that we'll talk about during the course of not necessarily this show, but as we move forward with the legislature, mm-hmm. how difficult is it going to be for Republican legislators to push back against a governor who is right now as strong as he is likely to ever be? No, I, I think I think especially on the on the on this the 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 uh, the healthcare website issue, I think uh, I think it's very very likely that something will pass. Uh, uh, and he's and, and and we need to note that he's there, there. There are there are areas of of healthcare in Georgia that he is uh, trying to address. I mean, he is proposing that that uh, the the expansion of uh, Medicaid coverage for 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 pregnant women uh, to just to 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 address Georgia's abysmal uh, uh, maternal mortality rate. And one one more thing to add on the on this the the, the website issue is. In, in I, I think where Kemp's emphasis is is on 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 people with jobs in rural Georgia who still can't get health care coverage. That 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 uh, this is it, it, it is a major, major problem because it, it's it's so healthcare is so scarce in, in those areas, and the pre, the premiums are just just uh, uh, extremely high because there's no no competition. And this reinsurance issue is is his his effort to to real to uh, to address that. So I think he's I think he's taking care of of Republican business in that manner. Um, Adrian, I'm glad that Jim pointed out that Governor Kemp is is promoting uh, this measure that will give aid to uh, pregnant women, will give them more protections under Medicaid, I believe. Um, because and, and the reason I think that's important is because when when the state passed the uh, heartbeat law, that, that uh, severe restriction on abortions in the state, there were many critics who said, all right, you've done that. Now what is the state going to do to support the women, to provide services for women who are going to now have a, a babies that may have been unwanted for whatever reason, economic and the like? So this is, I think, an, an important step for, for uh, many people who have been critical of how much the state will do to support uh, women in that situation. 
I still feel like it falls along this, um, <laughs> you, you know, politics at base. Um, yes, you want to provide health care for mothers who are um, having issues, but, um, you know, sometimes the need for abortion access is not about just about choice. It's about, you know, health care access. Uh, women, even women who are, you know, pregnant, they're not uh, making a choice about whether they want a child um, or not. Perhaps they are in a medical emergency and need that care. So I think that, um, you know, access for health care in Georgia needs to be opened up. If the state wants to provide something, I've, I still don't understand why we can't have expansion in the meantime, for example. Um, uh, Meg, while we're talking about um, abortion, I think we should point out that South Carolina had passed a, a, a similar six-week ban on abortion, um, but um, the state Supreme Court uh, overturned it. They said that the law banning abortions when cardiac activity is detected violated the state's constitution, the state constitution's right to privacy. And of course, there's a case pending in Georgia right now. It's not on privacy grounds so much as something else that we don't have to get into today. But um, help us with what's happening in South Carolina. Certainly, yes. This so-called quote-unquote heartbeat bill, the same kind of thing that's been debated in a lot of places, was signed into law immediately after the legislature passed it and then also litigation filed immediately thereafter, which, which we expect in these environments. So that litigation has been ongoing for a long time. And about a month ago, almost, the state Supreme Court, as you note, ruled it unconstitutional. Currently, the Republican governor, Republican attorney general are asking for a rehearing in that case. Um, oftentimes, we see those requests, but not necessarily anything different happens. The state court composition will still be the same. But simultaneously to that, um, the Republican-controlled legislature in South Carolina is yet again debating more potential legislation related to abortions. And, you know, it's, it's kind of unknown at this time exactly what they'll be able to get passed that might meet court muster. So now that the U.S. Supreme Court has sent this issue back down to states, this is just one of those debates that we're seeing play out over and over in terms of perhaps what some members of a conservative legislature, um, even in this case, members of the state house and not the Senate, the sorts of restrictions that they want to implement, the Senate may or may not pass. But then once we get through that, there will be more litigation. And we've seen recently how that played out in South Carolina, at least with the six-week ban. Um, Emma, I started the show by saying, you know, now that we're 12 days into the session, we're starting to see things pick up considerably, but the one area where we have not seen anything pick up and aren't sure we will is around whether anybody's going to introduce further restrictions on abortion. The leadership in the um, House and Senate have said they want to wait to see what the Georgia Supreme Court does in the case that they have uh, 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 in, in front of them on whether the six-week abortion ban here is legal or not. So we're not likely to see anything come up anytime soon on that front, yes? Not anything that we believe would have um, movement, at least. I'm sure bills will be introduced. Um, bills have already been introduced to repeal the state's uh, uh, anti-abortion law by Democrats. And you know we're watching the abortion pill issue 
as well. But I think um, the, the state Supreme Court has scheduled its oral arguments on this case like the day before Sine Die. So it seems unlikely that that would be opened up during the legislative session in a way that um, might might have to result in legislation if they were to overturn it, for example. So at least this session, it does appear you're right that for, for once, what feels rare in the last few years of, of Georgia politics and, and other, other states as well, we won't be seeing a big fight, at least that is what it appears to be, caveat, caveat, caveat. But um, yeah, I do just, when we, I want to, jump back quickly to Medicaid expansion to just say, I think what's interesting again about what Governor Kemp has been doing is that even though we've seen, you know, behind the scenes, I've reported on Republicans who have come around to Medicaid expansion, who realize that this makes sense for the state to do in their opinion, Governor Kemp is not budging. And that those are the signals that he's sending right and left. He said his state of the state was very much, um, um, in that vein, and that it's not something that he seems willing to discuss, just as he has kept that position throughout his time in office. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Jim, uh, we've been talking a lot about gambling uh, in Georgia for several sessions, if not longer, really. But uh, in the last couple of sessions, sports betting has really uh, risen to the surface as something which I think across party lines, an awful lot of people think we ought to finally do in this state, particularly since the United States Supreme Court uh, issued its ruling a while back saying it was, in fact, uh, legal. We now have a bill that would allow for sports betting in the state. And uh, the question is going to be, one, does it have enough uh, uh, votes to Pass, but number two, does it have enough votes to pass either as a constitutional amendment, which requires two thirds of the of the body, or as uh, as former state Supreme Court Justice Harold Melton has uh, argued, it doesn't need a constitutional amendment. It's really just an extension of lottery, Jim. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, the, the Melton's uh, entrance into this issue was very very. Interesting. I, I think he did it on the on behalf of the Metro Chamber of Commerce, Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, and and essentially what that does is it it it, it certainly gives permission to to people who who wanted to do so to who to, who wanted to support this who have been eager to support this, and his argument is is that you can craft gambling legislation that would really in essence be an extension of the Georgia lottery, and. And I, I think I think this would uh, this is this would be another cultural issue that would be immediately challenged in court. I think by opposition, uh, if, if, if should it pass by by a majority vote, uh, as as he suggests is possible. Emma, yeah, it is. It is. Um, it is interesting to see this year the sports betting folks trying to kind of take things solo away from casinos and horse racing in the hopes that that might pass in a clean way and actually be able to pass because as we know it all gets bogged down every year um because these issues i mean these kinds of gambling are quite different and people have really different opinions about them but um the bill that's been introduced is not my understanding is not the metro atlanta chambers bill so we might even see further legislation on sports betting specifically and on the other side though you know, the casinos have a lot of lobbyists around the Capitol. And um, there I've heard that there is some 
question that, you know, they might not be so happy with a clean sports betting bill going because that might um, affect their ability to pass something in the years to come. Like, oh, we did a gambling bill. We're not going to talk about casinos now for a couple of years. So um, it's not, it doesn't seem, you know, there's still a legislative fight here to happen, but having the Metro Atlanta Chamber come out with the professional sports teams in Atlanta, I do think is a very notable coalition to watch and coming out and saying, we just want a clean sports betting bill. Everyone's already betting. Let's get the tax revenue for it. Um, but we shall see. You know, a- a- Adrian um, and Meg, you're welcome to weigh in on this too. I, Adrian, I, was, I had argued on this show for a while that um, the uh, religious right would push back hard on this and might make it more difficult for any kind of gambling legislation to pass, given that they are a pretty powerful uh, interest group. Uh, but I got schooled on that by a panel a while back that said to me, they're not what they used to be. You're overestimating what their influence might be. And I, I think that may very well be true. This isn't like the days when Zell Miller tried to initially pass the lottery and uh, in his reelection bid really struggled because of the influence of the religious right. It'll be interesting to see if their power really is waning the way people have been uh, telling me I ought to be aware of on this show. Um, probably, I think that, uh, you know, every time the legislature takes a look at it, it becomes uh, more friendly in the state. Uh, you know, right now it's got support from the lieutenant governor and the governor. I just think that if it doesn't happen now, it will happen eventually, um, even if there remains to be uh, moral opposition from the religious right. Meg, you want to uh, weigh in before our break? Sure. Yeah. You know, when I think about sports betting, it's always so interesting to watch different states handle this issue. And, you know, particularly here in South Carolina, this is something that Democrats and perhaps in particular, the Democratic House Majority Leader has been proposing for years. The Democratic nominee for governor was very bullish this past cycle about this being one of his potential platform tenants. And it's gone nowhere. He lost. Legislators aren't interested in debating it. And there was a study a couple of years ago going to your point about evangelicals and Christian conservatives and saying some many saying that there was a moral opposition to dealing with this issue. And that particularly is something I've heard among legislators in South Carolina. We're not interested in discussing this. We have more than just a political opposition to it. Yeah, the money would be great. Um, but we're just not going to go there. And, you know, so we'll see how it plays out here, Georgia, and a whole bunch of other places that have been considering taking this on. Jim, I do have to get to a break. But look, you've been following all this longer than um, almost anybody. What, tell, give us your thoughts on that. Uh, well, well, first of all, to your point, yeah, I think I think uh, evangelical influence in in, the, in our state capital has has declined since two thousand four. That was kind of when it hit its peak, with the with the with the con- state constitutional ban on on gay marriage, uh, and what what you do have to work into this is is the uh, is the economic development issue is the is the just the thirst for jobs and. And and any kind of expansion of jobs, and that's where that's where, and this is I I think this may be one place where sports betting uh, is at a disadvantage because I'm I'm uh, Emma can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I I don't see them uh, addressing. Uh, Using this as a, as a as a as citing any job increases with this, whereas horse racing and casinos, you're still you are talking about a good deal of of tourist, tourism at stake. 
I think that's right. Yeah, the argument is just workforce. Yeah, the argument is just from sports betting workforce development uh, because of the money going to the lottery to hope scholarship to pre-K and perhaps needs base aid. So that's the argument. Natalie Mendenhall is frantically signaling me. I'm very late for our first break. Let's get to it right now. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emma Hurt, Adrian Jones, Jim Galloway, and Meg Kennard uh, join us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Meg, you're based in South Carolina, but of course you're a national politics reporter for Associated Press. But because you are in South Carolina, I want to start with you. Uh, You were at the Trump event in South Carolina. He did two events last weekend, of course, New Hampshire, then in South Carolina. We know they were small scale, none of this big rally uh, kind of thing that he's done in the past. Um, tell us a little bit about what you saw of Trump uh, on your day with him, and then we're going to turn it to how Georgia Republicans are feeling about Trump's bid for re-election. Go ahead. This was a very different vibe from anybody who watched in 2016 and 2020 and the tens of thousands of people who would show up at airplane hangars, high school gyms, big venues like that. This was inside the South Carolina State House, invitation only. Plenty of supporters, probably more than 100, I would gauge, but lots of people turned away who wanted to get in but hadn't been invited. And while the messaging from the former president, the issues that he hit on, a lot of them were the same, what we've heard in cycles past, the delivery was different. And it's, of course, something you're you know, going to be dealing with circumstantially with a couple hundred people versus thousands. I mean, there's no chanting and the crowd reacts and all those kinds of things. But from the get-go, the Trump campaign has said that this one is going to look different. He did roll out a state leadership team with the governor, the lieutenant governor, multiple members of Congress, Senator Lindsey Graham, coming out with a show of force in terms of official endorsements from people in this state who carry a lot of heft with the Republican electorate. So as the first official candidate in the race, that's intentional. And it's also a signal to other candidates expected to come, even ones from within South Carolina, like former Governor Nikki Haley, who's expected to announce here in a few weeks. So it's a different look, but there's still a lot of those same elements that we've seen from the Trump campaign. And, you know, it's similar to Bluestein's reporting about Georgia Republicans, I'm hearing a lot of similar messages from other Republicans in South Carolina about how they're feeling and kind of waiting to see, as opposed to jumping right in, even though they endorsed the former president before, they may be waiting a little bit longer this time. His messaging still has to do with having the 2020 election stolen from him, I believe, which is which is truly dismaying to, to many Republicans who are worried that he's got to get off of that hobby horse. Yes. There were some comments to that effect, for sure. Um, and it's it's definitely something that we've seen on his social media accounts and from his supporters. Certainly, that's still part of the former president's effort. But 
his campaign, too, has said that there's more of a focus on spinning forward. In articles I've read recently, asked um, even by us at the AP for other reporting we've done about um, things related to the 2020 election and these claims and, and things being unproven. His official spokesman for the campaign is saying we're looking forward to the next one and not really focusing so much on the past. So, yeah, that's just one circumstance, one comment for one story. But we may start to see a spin forward in that way, um, even officially from the campaign. There's still going to be plenty of people um, committed to talking and relitigating and rediscussing the 2020 election. Um, but I think for this cycle, with what's sure to be a fairly large Republican field, um, the sentiment of many of those potential voters is, OK, that's great. Whatever happened, happened. But let's please try to win this one. Um, in 2024. Uh, Jim, um, the latest AJC polling, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but they show that a very large majority of Republicans in Georgia uh, still have very strong feelings about Donald Trump. They still really uh, uh, support him as in terms of the work he did as president. Now, whether or not they're lining up to uh, vote for him in a primary is another uh, question. But but uh, Greg Bluestein, as Meg pointed out, uh, reported out a piece on Georgia Republicans in uh, in the within the party, and here here's basically a line or two from what he said. He said that um, several people within the Georgia party said that Trump is quote irrevocably tainted by the ongoing criminal and civil investigations into his actions during and after his presidency. And uh, Greg quoted a number of people, including Colt Chambers, who's a former chair of the Georgia Young Republicans, who's, who said Trump has done enough damage to our party and country post-presidency. There's a good chance he could win the primary, Chambers said, but quite frankly, there's no way he could win the general. We know this from the many races in 2022 that he lost uh, when he made endorsements for candidates. But maybe most important was Governor Kemp. Jim, who uh, Greg quotes as saying, to save our country from the disasters of the Biden administration, we must have a Republican nominee who can win the general election. Voters' frustrations with the direction of our country want to hear what we are for and what we're going to do in the future to help them and their families get good paying jobs, live in a safe community and achieve the American dream. So jump in. Yeah, isn't isn't that an interesting wording there? Uh, there, there? There are two things that I think that 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 make Georgia uh, maybe a little more unique, even than, than South Carolina. Number one, uh, we do have the legislature in session right now, and you're not going to see many Republican lawmakers come out and 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 cheer Trump on when they've got legislation that might have to go in front of Brian Kemp. Uh, uh, later, later this spring. So, so that's one thing. And then you've got the Fawny Willis investigation uh, in, into Donald Trump. Uh, this, this is this is a local issue that will carry a whole lot of weight. I think it's even even among Republicans. Uh, once she she makes her decision on 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 whether to indict anybody or and who to indi- who, who gets indicted. Emma. I think that um, it's uh, it's striking, really, to see Brian Kemp say things like that, because, as we know, he has tied himself into knots not to say anything negative about Trump, 
to this point, even as Trump was saying everything negative he could think of about Kemp publicly and repeatedly. So this is a real pivot point, I think, in, in Kemp's assessment of of um, maybe of Trump's uh, prospects in a primary, that he thinks that if he comes out in this way, he might be able to exert some influence over what happens. And we know there's lots of talk about his newfound national influence in the Republican Party, and we'll see how he decides to exert that influence, whether through his federal PAC endorsements, you know, the, the uh, rumors of him running in 2024 still persist as well. But to me, that is like a lightning bolt <laughs> of a statement because it really signifies that things have changed. Whereas before the power of Trump, at least in Georgia, was something that Republicans, um, including Kemp, were very wary of double cross, uh, double uh, wary of crossing, even when Trump had already kind of crossed that Rubicon himself. But now um, Kemp seems to see a path for him to to speak uh, speak out a bit more. Adrian, I mean, I also think that the president has you know treated the governor so poorly um, in a situation where the governor does have residence in the state of Georgia as well as the secretary of state. You know, he um, caused people to have doubt, for example, in our electoral system, which I feel like the Secretary of State is taking pains to make clear. Um, and we've seen recent polls that people do, in fact, trust the Georgia system. And so I feel like there's more room in Georgia um, to understand that perhaps, you know, Trump's candidates, um, his continuous in the same line that he's been doing since 2016, 2020, um, don't resonate as well here. And, um, you know, the governor definitely has potential national aspirations, whether that's a Senate seat or the presidency. And I think that Georgia's have a little bit more elbow room um, to move against Trump, especially based upon the way that he's talked about and treated representatives in our state. It's going to be fascinating to watch it play out because I think much like South Carolina, where you've got leaders like a Lindsey Graham who are lining up immediately with Trump, there are going to be other Republicans in that state, in your state, Meg, who will not uh, jump on the Trump bandwagon quickly, I would guess. And Jim, we're going to see the same thing happen here, an ongoing split among Republicans. I can't imagine, Jim, for instance, a David Schaefer, the chair of the party, at least as of right now, uh, turning his back on Trump uh, at this point. No, and you and you have uh, look look I mean, you you have yes you have Brian Kemp as governor, but you also have Marjorie Taylor Greene up in D.C. making making uh, uh, all sorts of splashes, and she is she is uh, she has bonded herself uh, to, to Trump just as closely as she's bonded herself to Kevin McCarthy. Okay, um, we got to get to the final break of the show. I have too many more things I want to talk about with this panel. We'll get to at least some of them after these messages. Jim Galloway, let's briefly mention that federal judge Steve Jones, uh, who's a Georgia federal judge, uh, has just heard a case and he hasn't ruled yet, so we'll sort of mention it now and then follow up as we get a ruling. But the case is about the Texas-based organization True the Vote, which has been one of the largest voices uh, in uh, saying the 2020 election was stolen. Um, did they, in fact, 
uh, try to intimidate voters and suppress turnout in 2021 uh, before the runoff election for U.S. Senate when they challenged something like 360,000 voter registrations in the state of Georgia alone. Um, uh, the uh, Stacey Abrams organization, other voting rights groups have have claimed in the lawsuit that that's exactly what True the Vote was doing. True the Vote says, no, we were simply exercising our constitutional right and our right under Georgia law to uh, make sure people were voting uh, legally. Um, so uh, just give us a little on that, Jim. Okay, uh, just two, two things very uh, very quickly. Uh, number one, uh, Months after, months after the, this, this is all about the January fifth, two thousand one runoff, Senate runoffs. Right. Uh, and months after that, Georgia passed a new election law, in in which uh, uh, it, uh, it it specifically said a a an un, that a, a citizen can make an unlimited number of challenges to to voter registration, uh, of voter registra- voter registration. And this is, I, I think, we just found out what what was behind all that. And if I could. Uh, bore you a little bit with with a bit of history. In in January 1946, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional the the the, the Georgia's white only Democratic primary, and the the there was the same year as a governor's race. The result was that Gene Talmadge, who, who ultimately won that race, although he never he, he died before he could serve, Gene Talmadge initiated a a just a a massive voter registration suppression effort aimed at the 200,000 black voters who were already who were, who were registered in the state. He, they, they sent out mimeographed forms. All you had to do was fill in the name of the of the challenged voter. And and uh, uh, that was their method of, of addressing this uh, the uh, black entry into Georgia politics. So there's a Emma? precedent for this. Yeah. Emma? The only thing I'll just add is that what I'm watching now is is we do know that the Secretary of State has said this is the one part of SB 202 that he thinks needs to be revisited, at least that he said publicly that he thinks needs to be revisited. I think he'd probably like to be back on the state election board, too. But this is this is one thing um, <laughs> he needs to be guardrails, he said, on um, on challenges when they can happen and and how um, municipalities and election boards have to respond. However, the question is, like, is there political will to reopen that part of the code section? And that remains an open question. This session, can can the Secretary of State make that change happen? Will anyone go along with it? Adrian, in the 2022 midterm election, uh, there were something like 70,000 uh, registrations that were challenged, um, not by true the vote, um, but in that in the in the midterm election and back in the 2021 runoff, virtually a very tiny number of the people challenged ended up not uh, being uh, said they were legitimate voters. Although the, the the lawsuit says there was one case in which a woman was pulled out of a voter line because she'd been challenged her registration and had to wait hours to get it resolved before she was allowed to cast her ballot. So the litigants see that as a sign that there's definitely intimidation and suppression. We'll see. Steve Jones has it uh, in in his power to decide. Absolutely. Um, And obviously I'm not Judge Jones, but um, it seemed as if in my research on the topic that it was designed to be 
uh, to create intimidation. Um, these submissions were almost 90% rejected. We don't really have good information about the last 10%. You know, were those people easily able to re-register to vote? Um, but the threat of having your vote challenged, the possibility of being pulled out of line and seeing that as an example, I think all of these um, suppressed votes make people nervous about whether or not they have access to the polls. And, um, you know, it's generally harassment. And, um, you know, Republican, the National Party was forbidden by that consent decree since 82 until 2018 to um, be at the polls because of intimidation and problems. And I think this is an extension of that, even though, you know, under the Georgia law, people weren't actually physically able to be there to challenge voters. Um, but that wasn't clear until pretty close to the election. So I think that it's just an additional way to dissuade people from being confident about the status of their registration and their ability to access the polls. Well, another very basic aspect of these challenges is the, it, it, it puts even more work on already overburdened election uh, workers around the state of Georgia and other states where this sort of thing is happening. Uh, Meg, uh, let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene for a couple of minutes here. Um, we know she's back on the committees because she's become Kevin McCarthy's best friend in the U.S. House. Uh, so he put her back on some pretty significant uh, committees. And uh, I guess it's maybe not surprising that in her first <clears throat> appearance on a committee, she's uh, on, on the House Oversight uh, Committee, um, an, an issue came up in which Democrats complained about the Republican decision to disband a subcommittee that had jurisdiction over civil rights, civil liberties, and, and the like. And, and, a, and a Democrat on that committee, Jasmine Crockett, cited the police custody death of Tyree Nichols as the kind of case that justified the subcommittee's existence. Sounds right. But Marjorie Taylor Greene said, yes, Nichols' death was tragic, but she compared the fact that the Memphis officers were quickly fired and then charged with murder to the fact that no criminal action was taken against the Capitol Hill police officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, a protester trying to get in to the uh, House chamber uh, and trying to get through a broken window. And here's what Green said. I believe there are many people that came into the Capitol on January 6th whose civil rights and liberties are being violated heavily. And this committee... Uh, should look into those civil rights abuses. She can't help herself, Meg. <laughs> this is, you know, it, it's um, it's certainly some interesting messaging. I will say that. Um, and to be noted, um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has come out and said that this is, you know, that this, these are not similar situations. This is not the same. Um, and so, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene being aligned with former President Trump, as well as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, that's an interesting spot for her to be in. But let's be clear. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is known for being a representative who is very good at focusing attention on herself, at making comments that are sure to be um, taken note of by various constituencies. And also, um, in the wake of January 6th, 
and all of the strong feelings that still exist about what happened that day and the arguments from folks such as um, the congresswoman that, you know, this is this, this was not intended to be what Democrats have made it out to be. Um, it's it's an unfortunate attempt at comparison in those two circumstances, which are incredibly different. But it also um, is, you know, we're, here we are talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene in a Republican again, Congress. Again, I don't think that's again, an accident. Again. All right. Thank you for that. All right, Emma Hurt, we're close out of time, but you wrote a piece in uh, Axios Atlanta the other day, and I'm going to ask you about it now. Why should Atlanta, not Chicago, my hometown, Natalie Mendenhall's hometown, not, why should it be Atlanta in 2024 for the Democratic National Convention? Oh, well, could we just list the reasons? I mean, from... From our pizza, of course, which is obviously so much better. That's not a controversial statement at all. Nobody has anything to say about that. Uh, your metro connection, obviously, from airport to downtown, et cetera, et cetera. And Chicago's just had too many of them. I just think they've had more than their fair share, and uh, Atlanta needs its due. And also, since the Democratic plans to move the early presidential primary up in Georgia seem kind of ill-fated based on the Republican side of this equation, this could be a nice consolation prize for Georgia, uh, for Georgia Democrats who who are unlikely, it appears, to get that early presidential primary. I, I, I wish we had time to just let you talk a little more about it. But what I'm going to ask is that we put up a link on social media, uh, Natalie and Chase, <laughs> uh, because it's really fun. And I think uh, I think the argument for why not Chicago is as much fun as the argument for Atlanta. My thought, to be honest with you, I, I don't know if you all saw that uh, Jane Fonda the other day was quoted in an article in the AJC. She's in this new picture, 80 for Brady, in which she and three older women go to see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl in 2017. And she said she feels conflicted because that's the Super Bowl in which Tom Brady led to the biggest led the biggest comeback in the second half of the game against the Atlanta Falcons and won. That's kind of how I'm feeling right now about this battle between Chicago and Atlanta for the convention. Uh, finally, one last note. Jim Galloway, uh, 538, as they so often do, did a great job breaking down the success rate of Puxatawney Phil in predicting uh, whether we're going to have six more weeks of winter. And you know what they found out in their big data crunching? That, in fact, General Beauregard here in the Atlanta area, has a better prediction rate than Punxsutawney Phil. Okay, my, my question is, is could, we make, <laughs> could we incorporate this Groundhog Day into, into sports betting, into a sports betting bill? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that'd be worthwhile. Maybe that's you know a Let's political po- element. Yeah. <laughs> we should post a link to that, too, because you will not believe, unless you read it, the depth to which 538 goes into crunching the numbers around this. All right, I'm sorry uh, to say we're completely out of time uh, for today's show, but we are. And I'm really grateful to all of you for being here. Adrian Jones, Meg Kennard, Jim Galloway, Emma Hurt, thanks for a really good way to end the week. And thanks to our team, Victoria Evans-Cash, Jake Cook, Chase McGee, and Natalie Mendenhall for your work this week on Political Rewind. We'll be back again on Monday with a brand new show. In the meantime, I hope you all have a really wonderful weekend, and I hope it is a safe and relaxing one. Bye-bye, everybody.